Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Peninsula Bible Church Cupertino. My name is Brian Morgan, and it's my pleasure to be your host uh, this morning. If you are new with us today, we invite you to fill out a connection card uh, from the pew rack in front of you, and you can drop it uh, in the back. In the back, um, and also the, we have a goodie bag for you if you want to go to the newcomers table in the back. And also a welcome to everyone watching on the live stream. And if you're new, you can go to our website and click the say hello button and fill out the form. <clears throat> well, in light of the escalating violence and evil <clears throat> that has overtaken our world, the pastoral staff decided that it's time to address the unspeakable pain. <clears throat> and to all you teens and tweens this morning, the world you're growing up in is impossibly hard. <clears throat> And chances are you or one of your closest friends is really struggling with anxiety, depression, and loneliness. Your future may feel dark and crazy and scary, and you need to know that you're not alone, so don't you dare give up. Sometimes the emotions you feel start to swirl and everything gets confusing and terrifying, and you might lash, lash out at your folks or your teachers, coaches, I'm gonna tell you something important. You actually need to get all those dark feelings out into the light of day with an adult who can hear you and hug you <clears throat> and tell you everything's gonna be okay and who can help you and get help you may need. In the long history of Christian tradition, we call this lament. And we are commanded in the scriptures to lament with each other and with God as part of our worship. What gives rise to lament is that when life goes contrary to the promises of God, tensions rise up in our soul, making us feel disoriented, displaced, sometimes even feeling abandoned or betrayed. When we face these times of disorientation, we often respond in denial. We pretend that everything's okay. <clears throat> but not King David. God made a commitment to him and he knew that things could change and that God was responsible, which gave him the freedom to articulate every tension and every feeling he had in his soul publicly and then put it in the Psalms as an act of worship. So this morning I'm giving you permission from God himself to stop performing for God or for your parents and go practice the sacrament of lament. It might be telling your parents or a therapist the truth about how you feel, or journaling, or writing a song, or going outside and yelling. Don't yell in your room, you'll freak out your parents. But whatever you do, know that God sees you and is so proud of your courage to tell the truth about your life. And as you give lament time to work in your life, you'll discover that when you are heard by God, you will feel validated, and a calm peace enters your soul. God doesn't make everything better with a flick of the wand, but as you learn to be really honest with God about your life and your feelings, you start to see that God is right there and provides light on your path ahead one small step at a time. You know, the Psalms cover a thousand years of prayers. 
And every single tension in life that is possible has already been voiced. And so when we get to those impasses, these sobs of lament help us get through the impasses honestly, voicing how we feel, and then experiencing insights that lead us to confidence and new ways of understanding. So this morning, Sean will be taking us through the process of reorientation, through the lives of Mary and Martha, where they are lost in grief over the death of their brother, Lazarus. Between each section, we will pause to worship in song. And at the conclusion of his message, I will lead us in a time of intercessory prayer. So for our call to worship, uh, we pick Psalm 13, and we'd like us to read this together. Follow along with me. How long, Lord, will you forget us forever? How long will you hide your face from us? How long must we wrestle with our thoughts and day after day have sorrow in our hearts? How long will our enemies triumph over us? Look on us and answer, Lord our God. Give light to our eyes, lest we sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome them, and our foes will rejoice when we fall. But we trust in your unfailing love. Our hearts rejoice in your salvation. We will sing the Lord's praise, for he has dealt bountifully for us. Okay, let's stand now. We're going to sing a thousand reasons.
together to worship, that we remember first and foremost who God is. Um, we can't know or understand anything about ourselves or our world until we start with him. He's above all things, over all things, and he will bring all things into conformity with his great will. Uh, and so we look to him and turn to him together uh, as a congregation this morning. He is sovereign over us.
suggesting that the kids can go, but that the youth should stay. And that was very seamless. You can tell that that was really just as we rehearsed it. That was phenomenal. I'll just stay right there. So the kids are going. That's fantastic. And we love them. And the youth are staying with us. We're encouraging that. And now seamlessly back to Sean. Thank you. been a tough uh, week. It's been a tough couple of weeks. My heart hurts. And I mourn. In April 1999, I was working as an engineer here in Sunnyvale. And um, we worked very closely with friends in Littleton, Colorado, and um, on April 20th, I was going about my 
business at work and somebody told me, go into the break room and see what's happening in Littleton. So I did. And uh, to my horror, a school shooting was virtually happening on live TV. And as we in Sunnyvale tried to process what was happening, we began calling back to our friends in Littleton to check to see if their teenagers had made it out of Columbine. Of course, all the parents had left work. As Steve's son made it out, yeah. As Scott's daughter made it out, yeah. Has Kelly's son made it out? Yeah. Has Brad's daughter made it out? No. Oh, no. An hour later, we called back. Has Brad's daughter made it out? No. An hour later, no. Brad's daughter never made it out. Brad was my friend. I thought that day would never be repeated. But here we are, 23 years later after many more school shootings, and our hearts hurt, and we mourn. Over the last few weeks, we've been reminded over and over again that we live in a broken world. We've seen clearly that our world is still in bondage to corruption, as Paul says in Romans, and is groaning and is suffering. Our world is twisted and bent out of shape, and it's groaning under the weight of its twistedness and bentness. Evil, sin, and death are still very present in this world. And we Christians, we're people who should be rejoicing. We know Jesus. We know the love of Jesus. We have salvation in Jesus. We have so many reasons to rejoice. And yet, on the way of Jesus, there are also times of great sorrow. Jesus, the suffering servant himself, never promises a life of no suffering. I wish he would have. He never makes that promise. Instead, he blesses those who mourn. He says, you're in sync with my way when you mourn. Doesn't seem right, Jesus. How can this be your way, Jesus? Why bless those who cry? Why cheer tears, Jesus? Well, among other things, it's because we who belong to him have caught a glimpse of his new world. And we ache with all of our being when we don't see it. We break into tears when it's absent. 
We, by being close to Jesus, see more clearly the twistedness and bentness of this fallen world. And we allow ourselves to feel the pain. Whenever we see someone crying tears over death, we're the ones who cry out, it doesn't have to be this way. The mourners are authentically vulnerable. And it's in our vulnerability that we say, why? Why, O oh Lord, why? And we say, how long, O oh Lord, how long? Blessed are the mourners, Jesus says.
As we mourn the recent events, we do need Jesus. As Brian said, the staff thought it appropriate to walk through John 11 today, even though we studied it uh, last fall. John 11 is, of course, the raising of Lazarus. And it's a text where we see how real followers of Jesus mourn in the face of tragedy. And we see how Jesus, the living God, responds to the mourners. But we also see how Jesus, the living God, responds himself to tragedy. As one person has said about this text, in this text we find ourselves at extremes. The utter helplessness of humanity in the face of death. Isn't that where we are? Feeling utterly helpless but also the unparalleled authority of Jesus in the face of death. So we'll walk through John 11 today. I'm not gonna take it verse by verse. I'm not even gonna take it in order. But you can follow along in your Bibles or we will have the text up behind me. So I invite you into John 11, beginning in verse one. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So as we begin, we see the plea for help. Mary and Martha turned to Jesus with their pain, with their plea. They orient themselves toward Jesus. And it's a common refrain in our broken world, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. As we've been seeing throughout John, Jesus is the great lover. And we all are his beloved. So today we take our plea for help to Jesus. Lord, we're, we're sick today. We're in pain today. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has died. Verse 17. And when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And when many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So when Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. This is important because many Jews at that time believed the soul stayed close to the grave for three days after death, hoping to be able to return to the body. But on the fourth day, the soul sees the beginning of the decomposition of the body and leaves. Therefore, day four is when hope finally dies. Mourning and grief reach their deepest depth on the fourth day. It's the day that Lazarus is really gone. Could it also be that after day four, the numbness wears off and the reality sets in? After a death, there's so much activity, so much adrenaline, people coming, people going. But then the memorial happens or, or the service happens and everyone leaves. And now the reality sets in. So could it be that day four is the most important day to reach out to grieving friends? So that's when Jesus arrives and Martha runs to him and with bloodshot eyes full of pain, she looks into Jesus' eyes and she asks the question that we all ask. Lord, if you'd have been here. Lord, where were you? Why, oh Lord? How long, oh Lord? Their questions shot full of anger and rage. Now it turns out that Mary asked the very same question. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Once again, Jesus, where were you? I think we can learn a lot from Mary and Martha's example here. They first orient themselves toward Jesus. They turn to him. They know they need Jesus. And then they share their raw anger and unfiltered disappointment with Jesus. So can we. We can approach Jesus the same way with our raw feelings and our raw emotions and Jesus will meet us there. I've had a lot of raw emotions this week. In other words, we don't pretend that everything is okay. Everything is not okay. And we don't have to fake it. We don't want a denial of spirituality. We want a real faith. We can be authentically vulnerable. We can express all of our confused and conflicted feelings to Jesus, and there are so many in the face of death, especially in these senseless shootings. 
This story teaches us that Jesus can handle all of our pain and all of our hurt and all of our resentment and anger and distress and despair. It's all real. And we can take it to him. That's what the Psalms teach us as well, don't they? And that brings us to Jesus' response. How does the living God respond to tragedy? Verse 33. When Jesus saw her, that's Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, Come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, how, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So Mary is weeping. The word here is wailing, crying loudly without restraint. And when Jesus sees it and sees everyone else weeping, he's overwhelmed with emotion. The text says he's deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Those words don't do this text justice. You may remember me sharing this last year when we talked about this text, but to be deeply moved is a very strong emotional verb and was used in the first century for horses snorting in rage. Imagine an agitated horse who rears up on the back legs and snorts into the air. That's Jesus here. He's full of rage. He's greatly disturbed, angry at the core of his being. So much so that if you'd have been there, you'd have seen his body tremble as he lets out a disturbing, inarticulate snort. And it makes us ask, why? Why is he so angry? He knows what he's about to do, doesn't he? So why is he so angry here? Well, I think it's because he knows death is not a part of his good creation. The death we've witnessed over the past few weeks, the death in the Ukraine, the death all over the world, none of it belongs in his good creation. Death is a result of human sin. God had warned Adam and Eve that if they went their own way, Without him, death would result, and they did, and they died. Humanity's disobedience resulted in death and continues to result in death. And Jesus is standing before that which does not belong, and he is angry. Could it also be that he is standing there and looking down upon the ages of human history and seeing all the death that's coming to all his good image bearers? And he rears up in anger. 
because his good image was never meant to be desecrated in this way. As one writer says, I hear in Jesus' actions and in his snort, this ought not be. I think Jesus is also showing us that it's okay to express anger at death. God does. Because it's an intrusion into his good world. Well, Jesus then weeps. This is a different verb for crying, and this one means to quietly shed tears. So here's the picture. The living God is coming to grips with the death of a friend, and he first bursts out in a groan of anger, followed by a quiet burst of tears. The God of the universe quietly sheds tears. Jesus reveals the heart of God, the compassion of God, the love of God. See, the Greeks saw gods as unfeeling and passionless and without emotion. They felt if a god were to be a god, they could have no emotions. That's not the living God. God loves, God cares, and God hurts. Here is the living God standing with grieving people, agonized by the human condition and so full of passion and emotion, he weeps with them. In a moment, he will wipe away all the tears. But the line I never get tired of saying, as long as there are tears, the living God will cry them with you. He's crying with us today. We are not alone. He's crying tears with us. In the midst of our pain and distress and despair, sometimes it feels like we're all alone. We are not. Not only do we have each other, but Jesus is with us in our pain. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is with us by his spirit. He is an ever-present help in trouble. He draws near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. And we are crushed in spirit today. Let's reflect on this as Lois sings for us.
Not only are we not alone, but we can lean on Jesus' promises. At the very center of this chapter, Jesus gives us the promise, the hope we cling to in the midst of our pain. In the story, it comes as a response to Martha's pain. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, that's Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So in the midst of the real pain, Jesus makes a staggering promise. He first says to Martha that Lazarus will rise again. This is, this is a gentle reminder from Jesus of the general hope of the resurrection at the end of time. 
the time when his followers will be given new bodies to live in a fully restored earth. Martha's response shows that this general hope doesn't give comfort in her current pain. She says, I know he will rise again on the last day. So Jesus meets her again where she is by speaking to her present pain. And his words are some of the most comforting in all of Scripture. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Not there is a resurrection and a life, but I am the resurrection and the life. So what does Jesus mean by this staggering promise? Well, by saying, I am the resurrection, Jesus is saying that for those who believe in him, death is not the last word. Death is real, and death is awful, but it is not final. Believers go to the grave, yes, but they go through the grave into eternal life. Secondly, Jesus says, he's, I, says I am the life. Last week, we spent some time on this with Jesus' claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So this is a bit of a review for those of you who were here last week. Jesus being the life explains him being the resurrection. Jesus is life. Life which does not end and cannot end. Death cannot touch it. The grave cannot destroy it because it's the life of God. And anyone who believes in Jesus receives his life, the life of God. This is as C.S. Lewis says, the good infection. To draw close to Jesus in faith so as to be infected with his life. To receive his life. And we receive it now. As, soon, as we believe, we receive his life. Jesus then asked Martha, do you believe this? In other words, Martha, do you believe that I, in fact, have power over Lord death? To which Martha responds with a yes. And of course, at the end of the chapter, we see his power. He demonstrates that he does have power over Lord death. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Jesus doesn't stop with identifying with our pain. His love and compassion move him to act. He tells them to take away the stone. Martha protests, saying Lazarus will stink. I think we can forgive her for her protest, can't we? Jesus then prays. And without any fanfare or hype, with no Hollywood music playing in the background, he simply issues a command, Lazarus, come out. This man from Galilee, with tears streaming down his face, stands before Lord Death and calls out, Lazarus, come out. And from within the grave, there's movement. Four days after being laid in it, on the day when hope died, Lazarus walks out. When Jesus speaks, something happens. The word accomplishes what he announced. He says come out, and a dead man simply has to come out. His word achieves his purposes. His promises can be trusted. Lazarus would, of course, die again. But on that day in Bethany, Jesus shows that by believing in him, we live even if we die. Because he's the resurrection and the life. The raising of Lazarus prefigures Jesus' own death and resurrection. This miraculous sign of Lazarus ultimately points to Jesus' own resurrection. Not to a mortal life, though. Rather to an immortal and imperishable life. See, ultimately, death doesn't have the last word because of Jesus conquering death. Death is real, and death is painful, but it is not final. The tomb couldn't hold Lazarus, it didn't hold Jesus, and it doesn't hold those who believe. A believer's life is no longer bound by death. Our life is not taken away at the grave. It is simply and profoundly changed. And that's why we can say at the graves of believers, they are gone, but they're not dead. Because they've been infected by Jesus, the resurrection and the life. They have the life of Jesus, which death cannot touch. So while we grieve, while we mourn, we cling to this hope. During this difficult time of living between the ages, Jesus has conquered death, but complete victory is still in the future. And so we still mourn. But we mourn with hope, as Paul says in Thessalonians. For the Lazarus story has given us a glimpse into this whole new world, and we ache for it with all of our beings. 
and we break into tears when it's absent. With the Lazarus story, we see we can allow ourselves to feel the pain. We can be authentically vulnerable. We can look to Jesus and cry out, Why, O oh Lord? And how long, O oh Lord? And so we mourn with hope. And Jesus said, Blessed are you when you mourn. But he doesn't stop there. He says, blessed are the mourners, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. When we authentically mourn the state of our broken world, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and encourages us, reminding us of our hope, reminding us of his presence, and reminding us that Jesus is, is the resurrection and the life. The Spirit also reminds us that God's kingdom has invaded this world, has permeated through this world, and is in the process of transforming it. And nothing will stop it. So because we have glimpsed the end, we can move through these tough times. Death doesn't have the last word. These tragedies don't have the last word. Jesus does. And may he comfort you today. Amen. Well, at this time, I'm going to dismiss the youth up to uh, their room with Becca, and I'm going to invite the, the choir to come up on stage.
thank you, choir, and uh, especially grateful for those from the Good Sam Church, our good friends next door, for that uh, joining in with us. <clears throat> I love that hymn, and the power of it first came over me in 1991. Gary Vanderad and I were at Stanford Hospital to see a little boy named Timmy who had uh, fallen in the play yard with a heart attack. And there um, some serious issues, and he was not gonna make it. And before he died, we all held hands around his bed, and we sang that song. And uh, I didn't know the second verse, and the nurse was singing with us. She knew the second verse, she boomed it out. When she boomed it out, angels came into the room. And we felt it from head to toe, all, everyone, this peace that surpasses comprehension in the face of death. I found out later it was written by Horatio Gates Spafford in the 1800s. And he sent his wife ahead of him to Europe on a boat with their four daughters. And the ship had a collision and sunk. And he got a wire from his wife that she alone was left. So that he took the boat, and when he got to the place where the ship had sunk, he wrote that song. Very powerful. Well, now I'm going to uh, lead us in some guided intercessory prayer. Before I do, I want to give us two texts by the prophets. Um, the first is by Jeremiah, who teaches us to mourn and the second by Isaiah and Micah, who will give us a vision for what is to come. Jeremiah wrote this during the terrible uh, destruction of Jerusalem, and he wrote, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. You never want a comfort too early. When Christ was born as a little baby, this little baby was a threat to Herod. So Herod came to Bethlehem and killed all the children to and under. And once again they sang, a voice is heard in Ramah lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children and she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. In Evaldi, Texas this week, 19 children, two teachers, a threat were murdered, and a voice is heard in Ramona. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That was the 30th shooting in a K through 12 school this year in this country. It was the 212th mass shooting 
in this country. Both Micah and Isaiah give us a vision for when God sets things right. Micah writes, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above all hills and all people will flow to it like a flood and many nations will come and say to one another, come, let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth his teaching and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And when they get there and they meet the Messiah, it says he shall judge between many peoples and decide disputes from strong nations far away. And what will they do? They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, nor will they ever train for more again. Everyone, man, woman, child, shall sit under his vine and under their own fig tree. And no one, no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. People don't come to Zion because they're forced to. They come because they want to and they come and they meet the Messiah. And one touch with the Messiah gives them such love for mankind they take all their resources they once used to defend themselves, fight for themselves, greedy stamp over people. They rechannel them and become farmers of life, cultivating life, sowing seeds of life, and they can't do enough. That's what happens when you meet Jesus. I could give a rip about gun control. I want the elimination of all weapons. Everything turned into cultivating life, blessing children, blessing couples, humanity. So we're going to pray because prayer works. And we are the kingdom of God and we're the answer to this terror. We are the force of salt and light and prayer is powerful. And what we say today has an impact in Texas. So I'm going to lead us. And I'm gonna give you these categories and you can pray silently or under your breath. Stephen's gonna play. And we'll go through and meet the Lord in prayer and do what he asks us to do. So first and foremost, we need to play for the families that lost children and their teachers. Wounds like that are so horrific and the trauma, they need our prayer for the compassion of God. So I'll lead you in a time of prayer. I'll turn you loose, and then at the end, we will all say together, hear our prayers, O Lord. Let us pray.
Let us pray together. Lord, hear our prayers. Ready? Hear our prayers, O Lord. You can, yeah, okay, try it again. Ready? Hear our prayers, O Lord. Now we want to pray for the survivors, the children who witnessed it, were wounded, and are living with it. David Jensen sent me an article given 12 years ago by a person who was a survivor, and 12 years later they were writing. And he basically said, uh, when people say their thoughts and prayers are with you, it doesn't mean a lot. But he said, prayers are effective, and we need to be specific in our requests. And he said the things that they needed, that he needed, was first for their physical wounds and the pains and the ongoing medical process that doctors would have the right strategies and care. And then secondly, the invisible wounds of what they witnessed and the trauma that would follow and the PTSD that would haunt them for decades. And that they would have support groups large support groups, ongoing, family and friends and churches and financial needs. So let's pray now for the survivors. Let us say, hear our prayers, O Lord. Ready? Hear our prayers, O Lord. Now we need to pray for teachers. That sacred occupation that nurtures and cares for and shapes youth, whose jobs have been made tremendously difficult. They're paid so little and acquired so much. And so let's pray for our teachers that God would give them grace, courage, stamina, and support. Let's pray.
and let us say, hear our prayers, O Lord. Hear our prayers, O Lord. And now let's pray for our country's leaders. You remove the scales from their eyes and the hardness of heart and their party allegiances and the division and just look at horror, with horror of the tragedy that people are going through and come together in new and creative ways to do far more than the minimum, but to care for the children and the nation as much as the parents do. Let us pray for our leaders. say together, hear our prayers, O Lord. Hear our prayer. And finally, let us pray for our path. You who are the salt and light, you know teachers, you know students, you know children, you know officials, you work in high places, and how God can make us influential with courage and truth and love to further his kingdom that all peoples one day will turn their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Let's pray. you've given us to pray, to care, to weep, and to mourn. And now we pray to you and we close praying together what you taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. To God be the glory. Let's stand now and we'll sing one last song.
If you would like prayer this morning, there'll be pastors and elders up here that would love to pray with you. Now receive this benediction. Blessed are you when you mourn, for you will be comforted. May you feel the comfort of the Holy Spirit as you move into this week. He is your helper, your encourager, your strengthener, and he is with you always. Amen.